they're all meshed into one big group and we're a super super close tight-knit group of friends they don't ride bikes they never have really ridden bikes they do not care at all how a race goes how a result goes they're going to treat me the exact same if it blows up in my face or if i win the race they do not care and so i think that stopping looking at that and kind of recognizing that has been really really helpful to me What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Stable Cyclist Podcast. My name is JP, and I am really excited that you're here this week. I'm also excited to tell you about a new partner we have with the podcast, and that is Flow Formulas. I started using Flow Formulas about a year ago, and I was amazed at what it allowed me to be able to do uh, in training and especially in recovery. Um, and we are excited to continue our partnership on the Stable Cyclist with them again this year. If you're interested, and grabbing yourself some flow formulas, you can use the code JohnPeter15 at checkout and get yourself a little bit of a discount if you want to try that out. Now, more important than all of that is I am so happy that my friend Taylor Ledine is here today to talk with us. I've known Taylor for about four years, and of course, we have connected because of mental health. Taylor is probably most popular because of winning the 24 Hours of Old Pueblo and holding the record there for a long time, and he also very famously won Unbound XL in 2021, and that's around the time that we met each other. And he is best known recently as being a very vocal uh, mental health advocate within the sport of bike racing and beyond. And that's really where we've connected. And that's where this conversation is going to go today. And so I'm just warning you on the front, we get pretty deep on mental health. Uh, at times we discuss suicide, at times we discuss uh, topics like depression and anxiety and my own battles with bipolar. And so this is a deep one. But I also really challenge you to stick with it because we, we give a lot of tools um, for people that maybe don't understand what this is like. Also, one more thing, and it is my complete apology. Our podcast server drops out in the middle of the conversation for two questions, and I really would love to keep those questions in, but they are unlistenable because of the audio quality, and so I had to pull them out. But later in the podcast, when you hear us talking about processed-based goals, that's why we're talking about it, because we that's where we spent that part of the conversation. And like I said, I can't recreate it. I, I, I can't regain that audio that was lost through the podcast server. It just is what it is. Uh, but with all that, it's still an amazing conversation with Taylor. And without any further ado, let's get Taylor in the studio. Well, Taylor Ledeen, welcome to the Stable Cyclist Podcast. And uh, one thing, I guess Kelly McGelkey kind of got us off to this start on our first episode, but, um, you know, we, we like to hear kind of who you are and, and run through things quickly. Um, I, I guess the real typical, like, mental health thing would be to, like, ask how the weather is where you are, and then we talk about weather for a second, and then... Yeah. <laughs> uh, then we get into the nitty gritty and, and you did tell me that the weather has not been great where you are. So I guess, how are you doing? First of all, man, I'm doing good. I'm happy to be here. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to organize this, but yeah, we were talking a little bit before we jumped on and, uh, life has been good lately and it's been, I, I can't complain other than, like you said, the, the weather has been hit and miss, but I feel like that's one thing that kind of annoys me is it's always easy to complain about the weather and you don't have control over it. So it's like, uh, we'll just deal with it. It's winter. It's supposed to be cold, right? 
Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. You and I have known each other for about three years. We met uh, online, virtually, as so many people do these days. Uh, after we were both guests on the Trainer Road podcast, you were just coming off of a, a big performance winning Unbound XL, and uh, I was kind of rediscovering life after being diagnosed with bipolar. Um, but we've been kind of like mental health bike buddies who check in on each other from time to time. And uh, yeah, I, I just felt like it was a great time to have you on and, and kind of dig into to a lot of the things that we're both passionate about, and that's bikes and mental health. And and I guess the best place to get us kicked off is, like I said, Kelly McGelkey came on as our first guest, and he went like from never riding a bike to having a pro license uh, as his intro. And so, Taylor, take us through, you know, how did you get into riding bikes all the way up through, you know, all of a sudden, ah, here I am holding the pro license. And and as much or as little detail as you want in that is is awesome. Cool. Yeah. Um, got into cycling through my dad, I think, like a lot of kids do, or like a family member introduces them, right? Um, growing up in Phoenix, Arizona, I was really into riding and racing motorcycles. Uh, the closest tracks to us were 45 minutes to an hour away. And at the time, didn't have my license. So I was re- relying on my dad to to drive me on the weekends. And he kept telling me like, Hey Taylor, you have South mountain in your backyard. You need to consider riding mountain bikes. And I pushed it off, pushed it off. And until I think it was in high school, I went out for my first ride with him and was instantly hooked. And what really hooked me right off the bat was I could go out by myself, explore trails that I knew nothing about or that were new to me and rely on what I brought with me. And that's it, right? It, my dad also, I think, wanted me to learn, like, learn how to fix your bike, learn to rely on yourself out there. And I really appreciated that about the sport initially. Um, that quickly transitioned into racing downhill. My dad and I would frequent the bootleg canyon downhill races in Boulder City, Nevada. It was only about a five hour, five and a half hour drive from Phoenix. So we were going there multiple times a year and that's how I got my start was kind of racing downhill, um, in Boulder city, Nevada. And that transitioned into my dad and I spending a lot of time together going across the country, uh, camping at races. And, um, it was a good thing and a bad thing in a way. I think it was, I've told, I've told this before. I felt super lucky that, I had the opportunity and the family, like our family had the funds to be able to do that. My dad was fortunate enough to take time off work to travel to races. I think that was a good and bad thing for me personally. And in a way I felt like I owed him something for him providing, like he was paying for gas, right? Uh, He's taking time off work. And so I put this internal pressure on myself to like, prove to him, Hey, this is worth it. And that's kind of where this decline started in terms of at least I'd had mental health issues since as early as, uh, I would say four five, six years old, but that's when it kind of came to a head resulting or combining cycling with it. Um, so I did kind of have, uh, an unhealthy relationship with cycling somewhat early on. Um, 
and then yeah things progressed from there to racing downhill to kind of dabbling in the enduro scene and then into the endurance scene to where we are now and um my trajectory has definitely been like this <laughs> i've had way way more failures um than successes and at times it's kind of hard to accept that but in a way like I wouldn't really have it any other way because it's taught me so many things just outside of racing bikes, like life lessons that I otherwise wouldn't get. So yeah, it's kind of a long way to answer of saying how I got to where I am is it's just been this learning curve from start to finish and um, still learning how to deal with things to this day at every race we go to, it seems like. And, and I think that's everybody on the bike. Like it's, it's completely an evolving process always and um i want to dig in you said you had you know your first you know obviously i i'm we're here to talk about mental health a lot and we're going to talk about that a ton and i'm really interested when you say i had mental health struggles when i was a, a young kid um tell us tell us what you mean you and i have talked about this through messaging i've heard you talk about it on podcasts but i think it is so interesting that at such a young age you recognized, oh, something is different. Yeah, for sure. I knew something was off from a young age. Specifically, I've, I've told this story a, a couple times, is uh, a family vacation to uh, California. And returning from that vacation, I knew something. I, I was too young to understand what was fully going on, right? I just knew that something fell off. And the way I knew it felt off was like, the way I compare it to is you, everyone knows what a post-vacation blues is, right? Where you go on a vacation, you have a really good time, and it's kind of hard to adjust back into normal life. Well, I would get those at a really, really young age. And to me, they felt super, super extreme. Like I couldn't get over coming home from vacation. And I remember this one coming back from California with my family. And it was like a week or more of like – total doom and gloom of I can't get over the fact that that vacation is over and being in tears constantly I was like this just isn't normal like this is something's something's wrong here and I remember feeling emotion really 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 heavily as a young kid and to me like I said I was too young to understand actually what was going on but I knew something was just different and the older I got Fast forward through elementary school, middle school, and then in high school, maybe pre-high school is when I really figured out what was going on. Like, I knew I was depressed. I knew I was going through what my wife and I call these episodes that last upwards of a month. And it was just like, I knew, I it, it wasn't a relief, but it was like, man, I, I knew something was different the whole time. Yeah. Taylor, when you say you figured it out, like how did how did you figure that out um because i think that's something that like it's different for everybody so what what kind of clicked for you was it an event was it a doctor's visit like was it all of the above talk us through that um <clears throat> i would say it's a combination of doctor's visits and uh, a pretty traumatic year and specifically in 2009 I would say looking back, 2009 was kind of the year where like, 
I knew something was definitely, definitely wrong. Um, up until that point, I had been on and off medication on a regular basis. I had seen therapists and I, at the time, was going through so many health issues. And so I kind of became combative towards going to doctors, honestly. Uh, I was dealing with a ton of GI issues. And the amount of specialists I saw and the amount of prescriptions I was on led me to not trust any of the doctors I was seeing. And the reason I say that is because I had so many health issues specifically related to my stomach that I would just get one prescription after the next. And I was starting to get, I was starting to catch on to like, I don't think you guys are wanting to fix what's going on. I just think you're wanting to kind of mask the symptoms. And then this was kind of when 2009 hit. And in 2009, my mom was diagnosed with cancer for the second time. My parents got a divorce and our house burned down on Christmas night that year. Um, and that, that house fire that night was pretty traumatic. That's a, that's a lot. Yeah, for sure. And it was, it wasn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it a close call, but mm -hmm. it was, it was close in some ways of being pretty catastrophic. Um, and I never really dealt with that. And so 2009 was kind of this like, hmm. that's when things kind of took a turn for for the worst. And it was also paired with all these health issues. And I, I when I said I figured it out, it was like right then and there, I knew like, okay, I, I deal with depression, I deal with anxiety, and I want, I was eager to try and figure out how to deal with it rather than just, at the time I was super anti- medication because I would get on medication frequently and then I would talk myself out of taking the medication, stop at cold Turkey. And just, it was a horrible, horrible experience. And you would think that I would learn not to do that, but I would go to the next medication, do the exact same thing. And it was like, Oh, I just, it was an, it was an absolute nightmare. How, how old were you in 2009 when all this went down? Uh, 2009, I just graduated high school. So would that be eight, 18? Yeah. Yep. So like that is an incredibly formative time for like young adults from just a developmental point of view. And then to deal with like those three specific life events is so heavy to try and carry that. You... Aside from like, yeah, I mean, it broke you essentially in this time period. What was that like to try and move through that while you're dealing with all the stomach stuff too? I, I wish I had an answer for that, but in all honesty, I I didn't know. I didn't know how to deal with it because I wasn't sharing really what was going on. I was kind of hiding it, right? And that's yeah. around the time that... Um, my girlfriend, now my wife, Mary and I, we had already been dating for what, almost two years at that point. Um, and I was just starting to let her in on what was going on, but I really hadn't told anybody okay. about, I mean, my mom was in, she was, she knew a little bit because she was going with me to some, um, therapist and that didn't work out either. I, I wouldn't say I was com combative in therapy, but like one thing that I, 
one thing that was really traumatic for me that stuck out to me is I went into a therapist for the, actually the first time and was super vulnerable. I remember being like in tears going in there and the therapist forgot my name mid conversation. And that just, that like, I left there. I was like, I'm never doing this again. Being so angry. Cause I'm like, I'm super vulnerable going into therapy for the first time as a like young adult. And then something as small as like a name being forgotten that just set me off. And it was, I obviously wasn't malicious, right? Like now that I'm older, I realize like, I just needed to be patient. I needed to find the right person, but it just felt like everything was piling on at that point. No, a hundred percent. And, and I'm a big, like names matter person. So like hearing that, like a therapist who you are, your most vulnerable in that moment, won't remember your name. That's a deal breaker. Uh, for almost anybody in that situation. And, and then, you know, when, and I can speak from this having gone through it, when you're in that stage of major life events that are contributing to your mental health struggles, you don't really know what's going on. And you're just fighting to stay alive. And then when you have these other experiences on the side, you, you know, I, I mainly asked you if you had a way to describe it because I don't. When people ask me, yeah, what was it like when you were kind of falling apart? I'm like, I, I don't know how I describe it. It's I can't put words to it. And so I'm just always curious how other people have had that shared experience, felt about it. And most people have the same answers. Like, I didn't know what was going on. I just knew it was wrong. Like I was in a bad spot. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's definitely right. Is It's like, it's almost to the point of, and this may sound totally, totally wild and crazy, but it's to the point where during that time when things started to really get bad, I remember like movies I saw around that time or music I was listening to around that time. And even now I want nothing to do with that. I don't want to, I, I don't want to watch those movies. I don't want to listen to that music because it'll bring me back to that. And I'm like, I, that's maybe you've, you've been in that situation too. But like those no, I, things. I, I have that. I have that same experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's weird. Uh, and maybe I need to like visit, revisit those because it's not, it's, I'm not that person anymore. Like I've learned to deal with things a little bit, a little bit better. I would say like if I, I've learned to reach out for help and, I have a lot of help specifically in Mary. So maybe I do need to, to like watch those movies around that time or, or listen to that music. It's not just going to change me right away, but yeah, that's how traumatic it is. It's like still even 10 plus years later, I, those things are, I don't want any, any anything to do with those. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, uh, of course I'm going to dive straight back into it and, and, uh, <laughs> because why not you you talked about stomach issues you were having when did those resolve for you because this sounds like this was like kind of like just a, a medical hot mess that you were dealing with you had mental health going on you had physical health going on at the same time you weren't always being diligent about your medication so that was kind of like pouring gas on the fire and then you've got these life events that are just like they're not just pouring gas on the fire they're just like <laughs> They're, they're there with the blowtorch. And so 
how did the stomach stuff resolve? Is that something you still are dealing with? I can't imagine it is as, as a long distance racer now, but talk us through that a little bit. Stomach is definitely night and day better than it was for my whole life up until, uh, I would say 2015, 2016 is when it really got better. And that's a combination of a couple things. Um, but even at a really young age, uh, before 10 years old, it was, it was bad. I mean, I would, I worked for pivot cycles when we lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and there would be times I would be, it wasn't uncommon for me on a daily basis to be going to the bathroom 15 to 20 times a day. That was just, that was normal. And I was always seeing stomach specialists so much so that I was having colonoscopies and endoscopies in my teens, uh, multiple times a year. So much so that when I called the schedule, my second colonoscopy, they were like, yeah, you're not due for a colonoscopy in for like 40 years. <laughs> I was like, no, I, I, <laughs> I need to go in and get another one. Uh, and then they also found, um, a duct in my pancreas that was closing up so bile wasn't being able to move through my pancreas properly so for the longest time i thought that i was having heart attacks and i would be on the floor Mm. screaming in pain um i was having chronic pancreatitis so i went in twice for surgery on my pancreas which was not fun at all um this first time it didn't work. Second time they went in and put a stent in my pancreas. And I think that that all also, I think that the mental health and that fed off of each other. Now looking back, I honestly think there were two factors that led to so many stomach issues. I think it was the anxiety and depression and not, de- not dealing with it first and foremost. And then I changed my diet to be gluten-free that helped dramatically. Um, but I honestly think that I hid the anxiety and depression so much that I made myself sick. Yeah. That, that does not sound weird to me because I had massive allergic reactions for like 10 years to different things, like go to the ER and need an EpiPen allergic reactions and all these allergies we thought I had. And since I've gotten treatment, like what allergies, like really none of them bother me. Um, yeah. That's good to hear. And like Taylor and I, we're not, yeah, for sure it is. And like you and I are not doctors. So I don't want people to like be diagnosing themselves off the things we say. These are our stories. Um, they're specific to us, but what I do always tell people who are struggling with chronic health is like, where's your mental health at? And like, maybe that needs to be examined because typically people who do have chronic health, physical health issues are struggling with their mental health because they're like, this sucks. My health is so crappy. And depression is pretty common in talking with the medical world about this. And so if you're having physical issues, don't ignore your mental health in the process because you're listening to two guys right now who had years of chronic physical health issues that 
you know, we're not saying they just disappeared, but they've they've subsided substantially since then. For sure. And it's like now, I don't know about you, but now that I've gotten more of a handle on this, I will know if I'm not dealing with stress properly because the first thing that goes is my gut. Yeah. So you you have you've made these strides, right? You've made these positive movements forward. You've identified um you've identified, hey, I deal with depression and anxiety and I do have these episodes. Uh you know, the you and I would know that we're not just healed miraculously from this now that we know it. Um, even if we've got a lot more tools in our toolbox to help us during the day to, to get through our day. What are, what is in your toolbox? If we're going to talk specifically to your mental health, Taylor, like what do you have that, you know, day to day, like I have this thing, I have this, uh, skill set. I have, um, I, I know that Mary plays a role in this, uh, your wife. So what do you have on a day-to-day in, in what I would call your toolbox to help you keep your mental health as, as uh, inside the guardrails as you can? Uh, for me, the biggest thing, and I, am, I, work on the, I try and work on this as much as I can, is being transparent with Mary about, about what's going on. Like, am I having a bad day or am I having a good day? And if I'm having a bad day, I, she wants me to share that and she will get, she's gotten to the point where she'll get frustrated if if I'll go two or three days and she's like, what's going on? I'm like, I just haven't, I've just haven't felt right. She's like, why haven't you told me sooner? And as small as that sounds and as, as, uh, as important as other, other things may sound to me, that's the most impactful thing I can do is be open and transparent about what's going on. Because I've noticed that talking about it for me is so beneficial. Talking about it kind of slows things down and I can approach it from different angles rather than just through the lens that I see it in. And I think that's, at least for me, that was the hardest part. That was the hardest thing to do is A, talk about it and B, ask for help. Because I didn't want to tell people what was going on and I didn't want to feel like I didn't want my problems to bring anybody else down. How hard was it to bring, you know, you, you mentioned when you were first starting to date with her and you were slowly starting to bring her in, how hard was it to bring her into those conversations and, and how hard is it even on a daily basis? Like this is who you're married to now and have known for 15 years, if I'm doing the math right. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, how hard is it sometimes still to bring her into the picture on a day-to-day basis and just tell her, this is how I feel? It's super, it's super difficult because you don't want to be, sometimes I don't want to feel, I, I don't want, like I said earlier, I don't want my problems to bring somebody else down. Right. So like if somebody else is having a good sure. day, I don't want to ruin that. I want them to continue to have a good day. I don't want to just, I don't want to bring them down from their high to be on my level. And that's never my intention, but it was much, it was difficult when we first started dating. It was difficult up until I would say it was the most difficult up until 2021. Uh, that was the tipping point of 
I still wasn't being fully transparent of what was going on. And in 2021 is when I told her about the suicidal thoughts and was like, I need to speak up Mm. now. And I feel so fortunate that I did speak up when I did. And her reaction is something that I'm really fortunate about too. Cause it wasn't, it wasn't like sound the alarm bell. It was approach it from a really calm state. And that, that was also calming to me. Right. Because I think, I think a lot of people, there's this preconceived notion about suicidal thoughts or, um, suicidal ideations of like there's just this stigma behind it and i feel so fortunate that those stigmas or those um preconceived notions weren't brought to light when i brought that up to mary it was more just like okay well we will figure this out thank you for telling me um let's go get help and so since 2021 i would say it's gotten much easier up until that point what what pushed you in 2021 to finally tell her about that? Is Had you been having suicidal thoughts for a long time before that? Or was it that something new? Um, <clears throat> I'd had it a handful of times prior to 21. Uh, I would say the most common was when I would stop my medication cold turkey and uh, you would, mm-hmm. like I said earlier, you think I would have learned from every time that I did that, but I didn't. And I would stop cold Turkey and it would, things would just go for a loop. Um, and then I did a handful of times up until 21, but 2021 was when I just told her, like, I remember telling her, I'm not willing to be around any longer. If this is how my life is like these episodes became more frequent and more frequent and more frequent. And I just was, I was to the point where it's like, if I, if I don't get help or if I don't figure out how to cope with this, I'm not interested in being here. Like I, it was just too much. It was too much to handle. It was too exhausting. It was too painful. And it was just like, I had, I felt like I had to speak up. It's super thankful that I did speak up. Yeah. Sorry. I- <laughs> I didn't think there was any way I'd get emotional here tonight, but I am. Um, suicide thought, suicidal thoughts is something that is so misunderstood uh, by, I feel, a lot of the public. And I didn't understand it myself until I went through it. And what you just described is is what I've every person I've ever talked to who has survived all the suicidal thoughts. It's not that we're so sad. It's... It's that the pain that is being gone through is so heavy or even just the heaviness you're experiencing is so heavy. You just, you don't want to live with that anymore and you want that to end. And so, yeah, I, I'm really glad you put words to that. Hey folks, real quick, this is JP and this is the part of the conversation where the audio dropped out and if I didn't put this interruption in, you would wonder how we went from talking very seriously and emotionally about suicidal thoughts to the point where we're talking about long races and this is why. Uh, We dropped a part of the conversation here, the audio dropped out on a part of the conversation about process-based goals and how they help us when we're in those really low times, have something to just chip away at and work on and get us through the day. Um, A lot of times, if you're around me at least, I will talk about, I'm just going day to day right now or I might even tell you like I'm going hour by hour. 
And it doesn't mean I'm trying to survive uh, each hour. It means I'm literally focused on what I have to do in this hour to get through it, to get to the next thing. And it helps me not focus so much maybe on the big picture um, or the, the big goal. Um, it just helps me get to where eventually I will get to that big goal. So onwards. When I think about your, your super strong in the long, not like the kind of long events, but like the people sleep during the night while you're out racing type events. Um, you were second at Worlds in, was it 2017? Uh, For the 24-hour race? 2018 in Scotland. Okay. I was off by a year. I apologize. but No worries. Uh, you've had a lot of success there. You've won 24 hours of Old Pueblo, and you were the course record holder there as well, I believe? Uh, yeah, up until Keegan went out and broke the course record <laughs> yeah keegan broke everything in bicycle racing yeah um and then you your you know your big signature gravel win is unbound xl which is another 24 hour ish event on gravel and, and that was in 2021 correct yep 2021 so my question and <laughs> Knowing that, like, when we talk about my my personal toolbox is, like, sleep is paramount. And uh, I love the long stuff, but since, since I was diagnosed with bipolar, I look at the 24-hour stuff with, like, terror in my heart just from the fact of, like, oh, I'm not going to sleep for a night. So how do you, A, why do you love the 24-hour stuff so much, first of all? And then second of all, how do you manage that, you know, sleep is such an important domino for us in the mental health world, but yet this thing that you do for a living is going to push you outside that boundary. Yeah, it's, it's tough, right? Like we all need sleep. That's how we recover, but it's also, I notice if I get too backlogged on sleep, uh, things start to go downhill a little bit, right? But for me, I don't sleep that well to begin with, honestly. Uh, I would say within the past five, six years, I've noticed my sleep. I wouldn't necessarily say quantity. Uh, yeah, I would say I would say quality has declined. Like some nights, I just can't fall asleep. Um, so for me, the, the stuff that's usually you go a night without sleep isn't that big of a deal. You definitely need to recover from it. It takes the extended period of time, but it's not like you're in this deep sleep deprived state for days and days on end. I've just found that for me personally. <clears throat> um, I think that the longer events are a calling, A, because the shorter events scare me so much, <laughs> like that all out pace is so hard for me. Well, um, I love doing them and planning on doing more this year, but it's just, I feel like I'm geared more towards the longer stuff, but also it goes back to that process that those goals, right? The, there's so much time in those races that you can check so many boxes. <clears throat> so it doesn't go according to plan there's still so many small wins that you can chalk up along the way. Um, and a lot of those races for me have not gone to plan. <laughs> like they've, 
I've fallen <laughs> flat on my face and uh, but there's always a positive to take away from it like yeah you can look at it like you you fail if you either don't finish or something there's like something something is going to happen during those but looking at it from a different lens there's also so many wins you can take away from it yeah the the thing about the so let's talk about the night <laughs> this uh, Kelly Galke and I parked on this for a little bit too let's talk about the night not necessarily the not sleeping part um, but let's talk now about what is that like for people that aren't familiar with 24-hour racing or 24-hour gravel racing what is it like to ride in the nighttime and does like what does the mind do during that time the nighttime is my favorite part, honestly. Because um, you kind of, for me, I kind of lose track of time at the during the night because once the sun goes down, you're just, you're, all you're looking through is your headlight, right? You kind of lose like peripheral vision. So all you're focused on is this beam of light. So it kind of feels like you're in a tube from sun down to sun up. So I typically kind of lose track of time. And the only sense of time I have is when you see the sun starting to rise in the horizon. And so that can be a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing. If you, I have found when it's a negative thing, I think too much about that. I get too deep in my head and try to like keep track of time. <clears throat> And I've learned that when things have gone well, I just kind of surrender to it. And it's like, you know what? Time is going to pass. You have no control over it. Just try to focus on the positives. Try to look after your health. Look after your body. Um, celebrate some of the small wins, but don't over-celebrate because something inevitably is going to come up that's going to sh shoot you back down to reality. But it is interesting because, yeah, you, you definitely lose time once the – darkness comes you kind of are like i don't know how much time has passed until you know the sun has risen and you know the night is either if it's in the summer it's going to be a bit shorter if it's in the winter it's going to be a bit longer so you kind of have an idea of how much time has passed once that sun rises well and ultimately you just basically talked through like i get back to process goals i get back to just like i'm here <laughs> what do yeah. i have to do right now and thinking back to the mental health piece, like there's so many times when, and you know, you mentioned episodes and obviously for me with bipolar, like I have episodes and when you get them, there's no, you have no idea when you're coming back out the other side. Yeah. And so it's just kind of like, well, I can really stress about each moment and, and I can really stress about how I'm never going to, I don't know when this is going to end or I can just be here and do the things I need to do right now. And so it's so you worded that perfectly and you probably can relate to this. And I'm sure, I'm sure other people can relate to this too. When I'm in an episode, the amount of times I ask Mary, if this is going to be permanent is crazy. And like, you think that I would learn now that it's not permanent, but when I'm in those episodes, I freak myself out and I just, the whole, I probably ask her 10 plus times a day, like, is, is this permanent what's going on right now? And she always has to tell me like, 
It's not permanent. Look at the last episode. You're going to come out of this. You just have to look after yourself. You have to be patient. You can't overwhelm yourself. And so that's a, that's a scary place to be is when you think like that of like things are going to be stuck like this, especially when you're in a deep, dark place. For sure. You have, obviously you had a lot of success prior to the real on the bike. You had a lot of success prior to the realizations about your mental health and you have had some big successes since you've had those realizations. And one thing I'm always intrigued by, and maybe you don't get this, but I'm quite certain you do. Often those of us with a mental health diagnosis are then perceived as like more fragile uh, around certain situations, especially if we don't succeed at something. If we have a big goal and it goes poorly, uh, I feel like many times people are treated like they're more fragile. Um, maybe you haven't experienced that, but I, I have not actually felt more fragile since being diagnosed. I have actually felt like I, I kind of have like a superpower here that I can, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a kind of a harder bastard than I was before because I know <laughs> this about myself. Uh, and I like, I can grind through things that I like, I don't know that the rest of the public necessarily knows how to do. And so what, what has been your experience with just how people have perceived you since, you know, everything you went through? And then also what has been your experience with how people are around you? Like, not when you succeed necessarily, because everybody's always going to be stoked when you're, you know, when you succeed. But how have people been around you or treated you when you have your failures? And has it felt different? That's a good question. For sure. And you're totally right of when you, when you said like, you feel like you have this kind of superpower now, it's like you, it's like you, you understand yourself a little bit more where you otherwise wouldn't. Right. And that's not to say that other people that don't have uh, a mental health issue don't know themselves. That's not true at all. It's just, we found, we found it out a, this way maybe it's unfortunate we found out this particular way but that's how we found it out right correct um yeah i would say that the the biggest the biggest factor to me is like i used to always put so much pressure on myself that i thought like if things didn't go the way that i had hoped or i had planned that people would be disappointed in me and not want anything to do with me when in fact it's been the total opposite Super lucky to have people that they, most of my, actually I would say, or I have a really, really good close group of friends back in Arizona that we've known each other since elementary school. Um, Fortunate enough that Mary's group of friends also hangs out with my group of friends. They're all meshed into one big group and we're a super, super close tight knit group of friends. They don't ride bikes. They never have really ridden bikes. They do not care at all how a race goes, how a result goes. They're going to treat me the exact same if it blows up in my face or if I win the race. They do not care. And so I think that stopping looking at that and kind of recognizing that has been really, really helpful to me. Right? Like, 
life is going to go on. There's way more important things than a bike race. There's way more important things. It's not to say that you shouldn't go all in on a goal, but you should be prepared that it it can go two ways. It can go the way you want or hope to go, but also be prepared that it's not going to. Like stuff, there's so many things that are out of your control. So <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely been a positive to understand that and to see that rather than to make assumptions that people are going to treat me differently. And I think that that goes back to the relationship I had with my dad when I first got into the sport and kind of feeling like I owed him something for what he was doing for me. Like I said earlier, um, our relationship was kind of strained at a, a, a certain point in my life. Now it's dramatically improved because I've matured and I've seen things in a different light and I've understood like he doesn't care. He doesn't care how it goes as long as I try. Um, and yeah, like I said, the outcome can go one of two ways. So just put your best foot forward. Well, and, and that's the reality for almost everybody in our life who who cares about us is the fact that almost all of them don't care how we do in these races or how we do in the, you know, pursuing our goals because they they do care about us. They like us for who we are. And we often think, you know, whether we're amateurs or professionals or whatever, we think our identity gets tied up in this thing. Uh, and especially if we, it's, it's so important to have friend groups like you do where most of them are just like, yeah, that's the weird cyclist guy. Like <laughs> it shaves his legs and that kind of, you know, like we need people like that in our lives because otherwise like it's kind of like the social media silo that you live in where everybody loves bikes and everybody's doing awesome at their races and everything's, you know, not necessarily even real. And then you have a bad race and you're like, Oh man, I suck as a human. Cause everybody, that like knows who I am does the same thing and they're all having a good time. And it's like, no, you need to ha recognize the people around you. They love you for who you are. And that's yeah, enough for sure. And that's, what's so, so that's, what's so what, relieving about when I go back to Arizona, Mary and I go back to Arizona, I would say total throughout the year, probably a month, a month out of the entire year, every year. Uh, I, I don't talk about bikes when I'm back there. Not, once when I'm with my friends because they don't care about it. They don't know anything about it. And I love it. Like it's when I'm with my friends back in Arizona and, but the bike is so far removed and I absolutely love that. Well, and, and I would encourage people listening, like who are really into bikes or who are really into whatever with their friends to make a point to not talk about that thing when they're checking in. And, and I can like, I could show people like you and I's text exchange for the last three years. We actually rarely talk about bikes unless <laughs> yeah. it's like, you know, like the night before Unbound and I give you like a fist bump emoji and I'm like, you know, remember you're loved, man. And then checking in afterwards and being like, are you okay? And mm -hmm. But just like make a point to not <clears throat> talk about these obsessive things. That's when you actually learn to care about each other. That's when you you know, find the space to value each other as people, not just for what they do. So that's good. You're, that's really good stuff, man. Go ahead. <laughs> you're so right. You're so right on that. And it, and it, 
offers so much more balance, right? And I don't know about you, maybe you're like this, maybe you're very similar to me like this, is I get very obsessed with things and Mary makes fun of me all the time. It's like, I have this mindset of like, if I get focused on one thing, I don't know how to break that focus. Like right now I'm into reading about truck. Like I'm always into reading about vehicles. I love vehicles and cars, but she's like, Taylor, you got to stop reading like motor trend articles on vehicles that we're never going to buy. And I'm just like, I, I know, but when I get into it, I'm like all in. And I think it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. And so I think with bikes, like you can, you can kind of go too deep at times, at least for me personally. And I'd be interested to hear what, like, if that's the same for you. For sure. For me. I mean, I, I have bipolar, which means I have mania and like, in those times, thank God I'm not like a money spender during that time. I'm not a gambler. Uh, I don't drink alcohol. So like, I'm not destructive. I am just this highly productive person and whatever is on my mind, we're going to go all in on that. Um, and like you said, on the one hand, it has made me really successful at the things I do. Um, because I've tended to direct them at, um, either, like hobbies or at my job. And so, um, it's how I've gotten to be a successful soccer coach. It's how I've gotten to, you know, how I've learned how to make documentaries and do that on a regular basis now. And, um, but there's times, you know, when I wasn't before I was being treated for bipolar where like that rabbit hole could turn into like three weeks of no sleep. And, you know, we're, we're way down the rabbit hole at that point. So I can, I can completely relate to that. And, mm -hmm. and again, those are things that like your, your identity can start to feel like it's getting tied up in that because you're so obsessed about it. And that's where it's good to have the, the balance and the friendship and the people around you, you know, uh, Mary and, and my wife saying, Hey, no, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> so pump the brakes. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> so we, we started there by talking kind of about like not reaching our goals. Um, and like you and I haven't, t because we don't always talk a lot about bikes when we interact, like we haven't really talked about last season didn't really go according to plan for you. Um, if, if I'm correct, is that, is that, is that fair enough? Oh, that's totally fair. Yeah, it was, it was not good. Okay. And, uh, and that led to last year you were in the lifetime grand prix for the second year in a row and this year you are not. And so you're, um, and you are no longer with your bike sponsor who you had been with for a really long time. And so you have come out of last year. I have been dying to talk to you about like, how do you really feel about last year? How did you work through that? Um, because a couple things and people are like, they say they talk a lot, but how do they not know this? Okay. So you had unbond XL didn't go to plan a month later. I was in a mountain bike crash that I came out with a severe concussion and like my life barely functioned <laughs> other than like the absolute necessities until about a month ago. And so, uh, our, you know, we haven't been in much contact as we were before that. Um, 
And so I, we haven't had this conversation. And so I want to know, how did you work through last year? How did you, you know, Unbound really, you were so, you know, G'd up for that. And that really went sideways for you. I guess let's start there unless you want to start even earlier. Yeah, I should have, I should have known that the year was going to be off to a rough start when in January I had a bit of a crash, um, separated my shoulder again. I've had so many shoulder injuries, um, separated my shoulder, had a concussion in January. And that was like, uh, I should probably know that this is off to a bit of a rough start. And, um, had to bow out of 24 hours in the old Pueblo solo last year because um, got super sick beforehand. This was all kind of tied into the crash and the concussion. So I should have known then, like, things are maybe not going the right way. Um, but anyways, yeah, Unbound XL, I felt super prepared. Went in there with a goal, um, the only goal, honestly, and kind of probably not the smart decision was I went there to win. Um, I would have been disappointed in myself with anything less. And yeah, I pulled the plug shortly after sundown. I mean, it's a couple hours after sundown. Um, the reason I pulled the plug is I found myself getting way too deep in my head. And I've learned through all of this, <clears throat> if I go that deep in my head, if I don't like pull the parachute right then and there, I'm right on the path for an ep- episode. Like that's, that is the start for an episode is if I, it's not like it's, it wasn't like I was deep in my head. Like when you're, when you have race brain, it was to the point of over, over analyzing things, anxiety attacks on the bike. So it was like, you know what? Threw my hands up, not ashamed to say like I threw the white flag up and I'm, I'm out, I'm done. So that was a big disappointment at Unbound. Um, and then we shortly after Unbound, my wife and I had planned to go live in Utah and Colorado for two plus months with our dogs for training at altitude and for Crusher and the Tusher and Leadville, all, all part of the Lifetime Series. And man, right when we got to Utah, I knew something was wrong. Like it wasn't a full blown episode, but it just, things were not right. Like things, you can probably relate to this. It's very hard to explain to people when things don't feel right. And it may sound totally like hippy dippy to some, but when things aren't like vibing the right way, you just know like one piece of the puzzle is missing and that can throw things off. So the whole time in Utah, that's how it was. Like couldn't get any good training time in really. Um, then we went from there, I bowed out of Crusher the Tusher. We went to Leadville. And I was in such a bad place physically and mentally in Leadville that I was like, Mary, let's just count this whole two-month trip as a loss. Like, and let's just go home. Like, I'm done racing for the year. I have, like, I can't. The longest I could ride for a long time in Leadville there was about 90 minutes. And then I was totally spent. And then she told me, she's like, Terry, you have to try. Like, you have to at least start Leadville. Because if we just give up now, like, we won't know what what could be. So 
yeah, I basically had to change my mindset of like wanting to perform at Leadville and dedicating two months out of the year for training at altitude of like, I just have to finish this stupid race. Um, so I had to shift my mindset there after so much disappointment and such a like hard first eight months of the year of, you know what, let's get rid of the, even the process oriented goals. Like let's, let's even throw that out the window. Let's just go with, just put your best foot forward, whatever that is, be proud of it. And so that's what I had to do at Leadville. And it was a, it was a struggle, (laughs) but I gained so much confidence from doing that because I didn't just say, I didn't take the easy way out. Right. And it's not to say that if, if people were in my shoes, that if they, if they gave up, like that I would be disappointed in them. I just knew for me, I just had to get it done and be proud with whatever the end result was. And it definitely wasn't what I wanted. It definitely wasn't what we had paid for in terms of Airbnbs for two months. It's a huge investment on our end. Right. But at the same time, yeah, super proud that I set us set all that stuff aside and was like, I'm just going to try. And sure enough, once we got home from that trip, that kind of shifted my mindset and it, allowed me to end the year on a pretty positive note. Whereas up until that point, a lot of it was negative. So that was a huge learning, uh, a huge lesson uh, last year when, yeah, the first eight months were kind of garbage, <laughs> kind of trashy, but it ended pretty positively. I, I want to go back and talk about Unbound XL, um, mainly because we've been talking about process-based goals, like driving our lives forever. And then you're like, I wanted to win. And you were like, it probably wasn't like the smartest goal to have. And I also want to like, you know, a lot of people are going to listen to this. They're going to hear that. And they're going to be like, what, why would he do that? And I would push back and say, you are a professional. It is your job to go and have success at races. I can walk into any race as, as a, amateur and be like process-based goals here today, baby. And it's no big deal. I'm going to, you know, get up tomorrow morning. I'm going to go teach at the school I teach at. And like, it is no big deal. It's different when you're making a living off of it. It's something Kelly McGelkey talked about in the first episode. So what, what was that shift where you say, I'm going there to win this thing? And on the one hand, were you saying like, I don't know if this is a smart goal to have, or were you just like, no, like, we're going to go for this one because I believe I can do this? It's a, really, it's a really tough balance, and it's really hard for me to get to that point of going into a race. of saying, like, I, I know I can win, first of all, and I really want to win because I struggle so much with self-confidence. I'm a very self-deprecating person, naturally, like... I always downplay a result, performance. I always think that the next person is better than me. Um, but for for Unbound, I'd won it in the past. I know what it takes to win that race. I know I knew who I was racing against. That style of racing really suits me. Um, my coach and I worked. I mean, that was basically our big goal for the year. So we knew my training leading up to that race 
him looking at power numbers, power curves. It was like, okay, we, we know if you can sustain this for, for unbound, you have a good shot at winning. You need luck on your side too, of course, but it was, it was more having that mindset was more of like, I know I'm capable of doing it. So why not, why not believe it? Right. And that's, that's a, that's a kind of a trap for me. Cause if you believe it, there's like, it's this possibility, but it's also like on this, it's like you're walking this, t- this fine line. And you, for me, I have to be really careful with that because if you go into an event knowing you can win, you still need luck. You still need to show up on the day. And sometimes just, those aren't going to happen. Sometimes you're going to start the race, have crappy legs or the mindset or the, the headspace shifts during the race like it did for me. So yeah, I would say it was, I learned a lot there of, and I, you would think that I've, I should have learned this earlier because I, I, I mainly obsess about Old Pueblo and Unbound XL. And a lot of times that comes to bite me in the ass of, if I over obsess about it, it's, it's like, oh man, it's, if it doesn't go according to plan, I find myself in this hole. So moving forward, yeah, I was going to say, those are the only two. Those are the only two races I've ever heard you say, like, I'm going there to try and win. And it's always like, you okay. All right, let's go, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's tough because, like, you need to be confident in those races, right? Because you have to have confidence if you're going to race for that hard and that long. Um, I don't know. It's it's a hard, it's a hard answer. This is, this is. Yeah, this is why we need that support system, though, too, because I have talked to so many people who's, who have a mental health diagnosis, and we all know that when we set a big goal like this, um, so, sometimes in life you still got to swing for the fences. And in doing so, you also it, – it might not go well. Um, and a lot of people need to understand, for those of us that have – gone through this mental health diagnosis and then we've kind of gotten our lives back in order and we're using a lot of these process-based goals it is such a reach for us to say i am going to go try and win this thing i am going to do x it's a little outside the box and so for us to get to the point where we say i i'm going to do this and i might fail doing it that's a huge step for us you know we talk about vulnerability again with the you know it's it's a huge step of vulnerability for you to get to that place where you say i want to go in unbound you you also have the support around you that if i don't these people will help pick me back up um yeah but but to it we still have to as people be able to take those risks and and swing for the fences once in a while because it's just part of life yeah, you're totally right. And you don't know unless you don't approach it with an attitude like that, right? And it's not you're not going in cocky in any way cuz I am I am not a cocky person. I'm a uh like I said earlier, I'm a self-deprecating person by <laughs> by nature, but you have to have that attitude in certain things you do, I think, because you don't know unless you don't try at least that way. So at what point last summer were you like, 
I'm not going to be in Lifetime Grand Prix again this year? Or was that, did you still go through the application process this year uh, to try and get in the third year? Oh, yeah. I definitely applied. Um, I applied this year knowing that my results, there's a high, high probability I wouldn't be selected. Um, Even knowing that the chances of me being selected were very, very slim, still getting the rejection was pretty painful at first. But then after a couple weeks went by, talking to some people, I think it actually is for the better for me this year. And that's not trying to justify it in any way. What it will do for me this year is allow me to go to events that I otherwise wouldn't be able to do for two reasons. Uh, Like energy management, right? And just the travel schedule. So I'm probably more excited for this year because I'm going to races that I'm super excited to go to, that I would choose to go to. Um, and just a, a change of pace, right? Like you kind of get stuck in the rhythm of going to the same places each year at the same time of each year. And that's what I really loved about the Grand Prix the first year was a lot of those races I had never done. So it was super exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't missing being part of the Grand Prix, but it's the reality of it. I didn't perform last year like I should have. I didn't perform when I, when I should have, so they didn't select me. No hard feelings there. They're going to select people that perform, and I didn't last year. So the goal is this year to perform as best I can and then hopefully be reconsidered for for next year, and we'll see. I think that for me it will be a good thing to kind of relieve some of that pressure Um I really didn't have, I can't really think where I had like a great result at a Grand Prix race. Sea Otter was always pretty, pretty strong, relatively speaking. Um, Other races were going well until they didn't, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter until, unless you finish there, right? So yeah, I didn't do myself any favors at really any Grand Prix event over the past two years. So hopefully we'll be back there. Yeah, did you feel, you know, you come from this 24-hour background, super long stuff. Did you feel like you were having to race a little bit outside your comfort zone in the Grand Prix um, to fit that kind of racing, or were you totally cool with the the distances and what was going on? It was definitely outside my comfort zone for sure, right? Schwamigan is only two, two, two and a half hours. Uh but Schwamigan each year was one of my favorite events, and I never would have guessed that. So I'm learning that I love all bike types of bike races. If it's a fat tire crit at Whiskey 50 or if it's a 24 or Unbound XL, I just like racing my bike. So I'm, I just want to race my bike more in different areas, areas that are new to me. So I kind of welcome that challenge now, whereas in the past I admittedly kind of ran away from it and would either like make up excuses why I couldn't go to those events or just try to protect myself, right? But now I'm like, let's go try it. Maybe it doesn't go the way I hope it does, but it's a different experience. Like I'll learn that 
I'll learn how I can get better at that, or I'll learn how tough it is. So what what does this year look like for you? If, if you can tell us about it, like what what races are you targeting? What are you, you know, if you're trying to do some things you're more excited about race-wise, what, what does that look like? Yeah, it's going to be a bit different this year. Uh, I just found out over the weekend I had – I, I was considering doing 24 hours of old Pueblo solo, but then after talking to my coach was like, you know, it's just too much this year with how many races I want to do to bury myself in February. Um, so I had asked around to see if I could find a duo partner. I'd asked a handful of people, um, nothing could line up. So I asked Lachlan Morton and he kind of was like, yeah, sure. Sounds like a good time. So, Lachlan and I are going to be doing a, a duo at Old Pueblo. And our plan is just to keep it super fun. We're, we're planning on doing 12 hours on, 12 hours off. Um, I think that's just kind of a fun, unique way of doing it. Like, go there, no pressure. Just enjoy the event. Um, and then the spring is a really busy time for us. We'll be racing BWR Scottsdale. The weekend after is Cactus Cup Mountain Bike Stage Race. Um planning on doing like Moab rocks mountain bike stage race. Um, still planning on going to Leadville, hopefully doing Breck Epic the day after. So it's, I'm trying to include more mountain bike racing, racing that I really, really enjoy, uh, racing that I want to do, but the big, big goal for the year is definitely unbound XL again. That's, I'm still kind of, I want to check that box off again. Um, just because, like I said, I, I think I have the ability to do it. Uh, and it felt really good when I did do, do it. And it felt good for reasons I think that people may not understand. I mean, 2021 was a really, really tough year leading into that race. A lot of personal things were going on. Um, and so that result was really special. I would like to go. I'd like to get that back again at, at some point. Yeah, that would be awesome, man. And just to get through it. And clean would be great too. So, yeah. um, as y you have, uh, you have dropped the, the phrase shifting mindset a lot through the night. Um, and if people are not familiar, they should go on YouTube and watch the documentary shifting mindset, which is about Taylor Ledeen and one of your attempts at the old Pueblo, uh, 24 hours of old Pueblo. And, um, tell us, so that was, that was a film you did. Um, tell us why you did that. And I guess, tell us why it's so important to share stories if, if we're ready to, uh, in the mental health atmosphere. Yeah, it was to, it was hard to make that. It was hard to kind of let people in on what was really going on. And what's actually really interesting about that film and a lot of people don't know, only Dylan Harris and a friend Brian who were shooting certain scenes on a certain day was, I was actually in the middle of an episode on one of the days that we shot. And I had to push, I had to d delay, delay, delay filming because it was in a heavy part of an episode. And so this was on kind of the, the, the final stretch of an episode that some of the filming in that documentaries in so it's just interesting like 
some of that was during a really bad time, really bad time. It was actually like some of it was filmed when I was going through ketamine therapy, which I found super helpful okay. for my depression. So it's just kind of interesting to let people mm-hmm. in on that. It's like, no, that was some of those are pretty, pretty dark. Uh, I just found it really important because I found how helpful it was when I talked about what was going on with Mary and also people that I was really close with when I first started to open up. It helped me a lot. So the hope was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hide from this anymore. I'm just gonna talk openly about it, be super vulnerable, and. It's going to help me in the long run. Like selfishly, it's going to help me. Uh, But at the same time, maybe it helps somebody else. And it's not, I'm not just trying to, the goal wasn't just to direct it towards cyclists or outdoor enthusiasts, right? Maybe somebody who is dealing with a mental health issue stumbles upon it on YouTube and they can, they can kind of connect the dots like, oh, I, I have some similarities there. So that that's kind of the the idea behind it is I think that talking about it is helpful and I hope it I hope it helps somebody I hope it what, what really makes me sad is there's people out there that don't have support I don't know where I would be yeah. if I didn't have support in all this so I'm super super thankful I'm sure you feel the exact same way and what is really yeah. what is crazy and heartbreaking to me there's people out there that don't have any support at all like that's just that's insane i can't even imagine where i would be if i didn't have support and so that's just that's something that weighs pretty heavily on me yeah most definitely are are you uh are you continuing to work you've done some stuff with go for gram as well correct Mm -hmm. yeah we did uh we launched we launched the film uh big sugar weekend here in 20 2022 um and gopher gram was a big help on that um i'm still in touch with those guys pretty pretty regularly um sounds like kelly's doing a lot of work with them as well yeah yeah he races well he raced for them he uh spoiler alert he's gonna retire at the end of the documentary that comes out really um but yeah, yeah. Uh he retires like it's the last scene of the documentary. But um that'll the doc will be out before this interview is on, so it's all good. Um Will Stingley is actually the founder the founder of Go for Gram is the podcast episode right before you. So yeah, this is just a big Go for Gram party here. So That's funny. You sent me the link to watch the film and I've watched the trailer multiple times for for your film. It's like, no, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait to I'm excited for the the premiere. You said it's on February second. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, no, it'll be. Uh, I I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, yeah, it's a it was a wild day. So yeah. Um. Yeah. So you have this exciting year coming up. Um. You know, it, the the one thing I I kind of always like to close things out with is. You know, you're sitting here today, you're you're like me. We're doing pretty well. We're hanging in there. Um, when you think back to the version of yourself who needed help but didn't know what was going on and was maybe too scared to go get it, what do you want to tell them? Because although, like, it doesn't matter what you tell your old self, 
there's a lot of people out in the world that are going through the same kind of stuff we've lived. And sometimes they need to hear that message too uh, from somebody who's come out the other side and, and it's, it's going okay. So when you think about yourself, whether it's teenage self or 2021 self or who, whichever version it is, what, what do you want to look at them and say? As hard and scary as it is to ask for help, you, you, I don't think you'll regret doing it. And it is the most terrifying thing to do. I remember letting Mary in on what was really going on. And it was about the suicidal thoughts. And man, I was like, I don't really know how to bring this up. And I did it in a way I would actually watch YouTube videos with her about suicide because I didn't know how to tell her. And I would do that. I did that multiple times before I actually told her. And she told me, she's like, I thought it was kind of weird. Like that you were, that we were watching so much stuff about suicide. And I told her, I was like, I didn't know how to tell you. And then I finally let her in of like, I'm not, I'm not going to stick around if this is what's, become the new normal right and so yeah i i know how hard it is and i'm sure you do too of like asking for help that's the scariest thing to do it's scary that you're going to be you probably worry that people are going to judge you or you don't want your problems to become to script somebody else's day maybe but if you find people that truly care about you they're going to be genuine they're going to listen um it's it's kind of a generic answer, but it's just asking for help, right? Or just asking somebody to listen and say, Hey, can you just listen to me for five minutes? Like just listen to what's going on for five minutes. That's all I need right now. And I think that a lot of people would be surprised how much better you feel, even just spewing it out for five minutes. It's not going to fix the, the whole problem, but it makes you feel better in the moment. Um, I would definitely, if I could go back and do that when I was younger, actually tell when my parents were together, actually tell them what was going on, I would have done that much sooner. Yeah, incredible stuff, man. Um, so appreciate you being willing to to share this openly and let us talk about a topic that a lot of people don't want to talk about or they don't know how to talk about it um, or they don't know someone who can talk about it. So I, I just so appreciate your time, Taylor. Yeah, man. I, I appreciate you very much. It's been, our conversations have been super authentic. Um, and while it's not like on a super regular basis, I don't even think it matters if it's not on a day-to-day -day basis. When it's, when it's authentic, it's meaningful, right? So it's like having an old friend, right? You can go six months without talking to, to a, a really, really close friend. But once you start talking, it's like zero time has passed. So I want to thank you for being super authentic and just being there during conversations. Um, it's been super helpful for me because I, I know I've been in some rough spots and just talking to somebody like you that I know has also struggled has been beneficial to me personally. So I want to thank you for, for being there and also just not being shy to talk about this stuff. Um, needs to be talked about more for sure. So appreciate you as a person first yeah, and foremost and appreciate appreciate the time. Yeah, of course, man. Of course. And appreciate you as well. 
Taylor Ledeen, everybody. Uh, yeah, I hope you got as much out of this as I know the two of us got today. Uh, but thank you so much. We'll see you guys. Thanks for hanging out and listening today. If you're looking to fill some time with some bike-related content, head over to the Stable Cyclist YouTube channel because the hour-long film Matahe just dropped on that channel, and it is an amazing journey through this year's Matahe 100. Finally, the Stable Cyclist podcast is a twice-monthly show that focuses on bikes, mentality, and mental health. Thank you so much for hanging out today with us. Have a great day. And remember, you are loved.